out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bolshoi, because I recently spoke to their keyboard player, Paul Clark, to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. The exciting thing that uh, announcement here um, is that the band, well, two members, Trevor Tanner and Paul Clark, have collaborated and are working again on new creative projects. Well, they call themselves the Bolshoi Brothers and have just released another single, which is going to be titled Just a Girl, available from all good record shops and probably online. But you're going to find out more about that particular musical adventure within this interview. But uh, if you want to know any more information, just go to the Bolshoi Brothers and um, .com and you will see more material. But anyway, look, this is the interview with Paul. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat that we edit out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, we're waiting. I think it must have been, uh, well, there's two things. There's one from the music, which was the Space Oddity. And uh, on the other side was the Laughing Gnome, I think. Yes. Or Life on Mars with the Laughing Gnome. And I was like, wow, so I don't get it. Is this like a different band or something? <laughs> and then TV-wise, going home from school, turning on a show called Runaround, it was Rick Wakeman in his oh. silver cape, demonstrating a mini-moog, um, just blew my mind and just changed my life. So that yeah. was the most defining moment. Yes. And um, did you come from a musical family at all? Were your parents at all musical? Yeah, my dad My dad was uh, and used to play uh, organ in uh, working man's clubs. So he'd disappear off on a Friday, Saturday night, come back drunk, smelling of cigarettes, even though he didn't smoke, and uh, play the organ for strippers and whoever was coming through town. Right. There you go. It's yeah, uh, was, uh, yeah. Someone's got to do it. And there you go. Well, is it, did you have any kind of older brothers or sisters that had a a kind of influence on your life at all on on the music front i just wondered if because often the the kind of the older brother or sister can have a massive impact can't it mm -hmm. yeah i can imagine well i had a younger sister two years younger and uh let's see so yeah i wasn't really uh, most of my friends weren't really musical i mean i used to go to school with craig adams of all people from sisters of mercy in the mission so he was the only person i knew who was actually interested in music at all and then I met a couple of guys at the street while I was living in Leeds who were into Queen. And so I kind of started listening to, uh, you know, Share Heart Attack, which was amazing. Yes, I remember that album. Well. Yeah. Yes, well, I had my, my brother was seven years older and he was um, he was that period, the perfect period for prog rock in the 70s. So um, and they were lucky. So I got obsessed with the work of, you know, Yes and Genesis and also the solo work of Rick Wakeman that he seemed to have collected. So I mm -hmm. sort of used to sneak into his room and listen to all those kind of, you know, King Arthur and Journey to the Centre of the Earth. And um, uh, yes. Well, actually, as you've mentioned that, yeah, I had a cousin, John, who was about four or five years older than me from my mother's sister. And uh, he had like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all that kind of stuff. So he was kind of like a big brother in a way. And he, yeah, he actually had a bunch of stuff that I, he'd lent me. And, uh, but yeah, it was also that Walter, Walter Carlos switched on back was an uncle of mine had all that stuff and uh that was again just mind-blowing anything to do with synthesizers just kind of blew my mind it was like wow this is amazing 
Yes, because yes. I was kind of curious because I have that, you know, uh, David Bowie obsession, which, you know, sort of stuck with me all my life. And, um, you know, so I've done, you know, I've sort of veered off in my indie pop from the sort of 80s and and sort of mm -hmm. done as many interviews with people connected to Bowie as possible. And, and and it led me to the interesting path that was the the beginning of prog rock, the very source that prog. And it was a Scottish band called Clouds or One, Two, Three. And there was a character in it called uh, Billy Ritchie that David Bowie suddenly starts talking about in the 90s saying how important oh. he was and um, if you watch any prog rock programs they all go back to this band and um, so I managed to track down Billy and have an interview with him and he oh excellent me, yeah and he told me that Bowie used to sort of hang out with him because he at the time the band were quite popular and big that you know he would just you know do his thing with um yes he'd just want to hang out with Billy and and sort of but then you know he had one of those musical moments on stage where he was just fed up with it in the late 80 uh, late 60s early 70s smashed his equipment never played mm -hmm. any more music and then in the 90s Bowie started having doing these interviews mentioning this band and Billy Ritchie so obviously you know people had to go and find him and say oh well, yeah and and he got invited to some sort of exclusive little party or ex exhibition that Bowie was going to, and he um, met up with him, and it was like it was a nice story. So it was nice to find the source because he told me that you know the audience was made up of all those members of bands that became very popular in the seventies who went to see him. So um, mm -hmm. there you well, go. I love that. I mean, that's my my recollections, my memories of. Uh... Or of moments like that, for example, it was Mick, I found out recently it was Mick Ronson, of all people, that s kind of helped connect me with uh, the Bolshoi's management and henceforth, you know, joined the band. Right. So a connection of mutual friends from Pete McCarthy, who was the Bolshoi's manager, to people I knew, uh, uh, Mick Rossi from Slaughter and the Dogs. Mick Ronson knew all these people. And it was somehow I kind of just kind of all came together like that. It's very interesting. So that's a little Bowie connection right there. Yes, because I did a there was an interview I did last year with the bloke who's just done a book on Mick Ronson. And um, and now I'm trying to look for it on. That's bad timing. But yes, I know it was kind of it, interesting. It was the nicest, one of the nicest people you could ever meet. I could imagine everyone loved him, didn't they? And um, oh, yeah. Yes. And it really, if it wasn't for him, you know, David would have. Being very quirky, but quite forgettable, I think, from his 60s work. That's a good point. Yeah. Good <laughs> yeah. Point. Him, I think it was like Ronson, Angie Bowie and Tony DeFries, you know, sort of created this kind of character. So it's, as you were trucking through the 70s, obviously Leeds United were, were, you, were, they, were you a major fan of Leeds at this stage? Well, I used to buy a comic uh, magazine called Shoot and Leeds every so often. <laughs> yeah, so whenever Leeds were on the front, I'd buy it. So maybe once a year. <laughs> yes. So so when did you decide to be a musician than a football player? Well, I was a very good runner, but very bad at team sports. So I could do high jump in school and I was a fast runner. But when it came to team sports, I just get the ball and that's it. I just and if I couldn't get to the goal, then that was the end of it. So I was like, OK, you're off the team. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> plus, I'm you know, I'm not the fittest kind of. Uh, person in the world you know I'm not really a, a runner type person uh, you know kind of uh, s maintaining that kind of uh, activity of a 90 minutes to me is just incredible I mean the athleticism so basically music was a lot easier yes when did you start playing an instrument I started when I was about six I was uh, I went to piano lessons and uh, but I was always kind of playing you know the, my dad had a uh, Hammond I think it was organ in the front room so I was always messing around with that just making sounds and 
banging the keyboard and getting told to stop doing it because you break those contacts. You need to touch like a fairy. So, uh, and then just got into uh, playing music. And then, well, you know, when Switched on Bart came along and Rick Wakeman, I was like, oh, synthesizers. And I, uh, I was in a couple of, joined a couple of bands, rock, heavy rock bands. And this is a weird thing is while Sisters of Mercy were doing all the cool places like the warehouse and stuff. Yes. I'm, in rock, I'm in heavy rock bands. I mean, I'm like, what the hell? And that's because I got into Genesis and yes, in art college. And I just kind of went down that path. And uh, I just liked heavy rock. And uh, so, yeah, so basically I'd get my first synthesizer was a, a Roland Jupiter 4. I think it was a Jupiter 4. And it's the same one that Duran Duran used to use and to uh, Toya Wilcox used. Right. And Absolina, I rented a couple of times. Beautiful string synth. And uh, a Krumar Roadrunner 2, which was a, a beautiful, uh, you know, touring kind of piano. So, yeah, I was doing that for two, three, four years, which was great. So were you, this is, so you're all based in Leeds. And I ask you this because I did an interview recently with Gavin Butt, who did a, a book on, on, it's called No Machos or Pop Stars, When the Leeds Art Experiment Went Punk. So he, he sort of taught, he, he ta talks about the art college in Leeds from 1975 to 1981 or 82. Oh, okay. But it's, it's a very in-depth kind of look at the, the kind of radical lecturers at this time and all the people who came from over the country to this, the, to the Leeds Art College. So were you, were you part of that kind of scene at all? No, I was, uh, so let's think, I was uh, maybe 16 when I went to art college, so 62, 72, so maybe 78, and it wasn't Leeds Art College, it was a place called Jacob Kramer, College of Art and Design. Right. Uh, so you had a textiles section and a graphic design and an industrial, it was industrial graphic advertising design college, and it was separate from Leeds Art College, I think, unless it's the same one. Uh, but, you know, it was around the time you'd go down for, like, a lunch break and they'd be playing uh, Gloria, you know, by U2, so yes. whatever that was. And, uh, yeah, so that, that was two years of that. And, you know, most of the people in my class uh, were into either Frank Zappa, Genesis, yes, you know, stuff. There wasn't really anything. So for some reason, it wrecks my brains as to why, you know, I just wasn't pursuing the, you know, the Sisters of Mercy kind of more alternative, you know, underground stuff at the time. Yes, uh, I think I'd have really enjoyed it and, uh, you know, integrated myself within it. But for some reason, I just went down the uh, rock road. Rock road. Well, it's Which is a, different. Well, it's interesting because, because you know, you had all those bands like the, is it the Dance Society? and Right. Or, you know, the kind of, it was almost like the birth of goth, wasn't it? And the mission and people. Really? Like I mean, that's, that's the, that's the background. I mean, you know, I mean, Mark Armand was, uh, in work in the clock room at the warehouse when I go down there, but I just go, I'd go to disco, for example, I'd go to Rockefeller Cinderella's and I'd sit in the back with my long hair and my inside out Afghan coat drinking, watching everyone dancing to disco music and loving it. And, and then I go down to the rock club and headbang myself to death and yes. then go back to the disco, watch it. So is that a mixture of rock and roll and disco? I think, uh, you know that's why I, I really liked i just loved disco everyone hated disco i loved it yeah well absolutely you know and because there was a, bizarrely another person who's just literally written a book called um yes it's all about some bizarre records 
Oh, Steve-O. and uh, yes, and suddenly that's all going to be very popular now in the next couple of years, isn't it? As people I think so. <laughs> so that kind yeah. of what the arty kind of sadomasochistic world that was some bizarre and all the you know the German noise bands they hadn't come onto your consciousness at this rate at this at this stage in life. Well, I was actually working with uh, a girl from uh, Karen Dean from Art College and a friend of hers, and it was actually fairly synthy. And there was also a, one of the rock bands, a, guy, a band called, uh, I can't remember what they were called, Pyramid. They were very proggy, proggy and synthy too. So I was definitely going down that road. Uh, but again, to actually play with a rock band with a really you know loud, good drummer and a, a great guitarist and a bass player, I liked that format. And, uh, you know... Yes, absolutely. So, so how long did your college years last? I was there for two years, and then it should have been a three-year course, but at the end of the second year, you had to do like a, a uh, you know showcase of what you've been doing. And I'd spent most of that year in the adjoining music college recording uh, surrealist kind of, you know, soundscapes. Yeah. So I set up these massive speakers in this in this theater and I showed a bunch of photographs that I took and then just played this music that I played, about 45 minutes of just noise. Uh, and then I got kicked out. They're like, yeah, you don't really need to be doing another year of art college. You know? Yes, blimey. <laughs> Seeing as you spent most of your time in the music college. <laughs> so that was kind of what was that about the late 70s at this stage? No, I mean, this would be, uh, let's see. Yeah, it'd be like 80. Right. So we'd already sort of, so the, then the, the, the good old 80s appears, you know, 79 Thatcher gets in. We have the, the, the Falkland War, the, the miners' crisis. Then we have, you know, Greenham Common. So, so what's mm -hmm. it like for you, the, the early 80s period, as, as we all sort of trundle around, groping in the dark for the. Well, I mean, I got some, I got a job straight away at a sign company that made pub signs. Yes. I'd cycle there early in the morning and design pub signs all day and uh, and then cycle back at night, go to the pub at weekends and, and rehearse with bands. And I had a part-time job at a music store called uh, Unisound right on Leeds Bridge, which incidentally, the very first movie reel was shot on that Leeds Bridge of a uh, horse and carriage of people walking across it, which is really cool. Yes. So, yeah, so... I just basically just did my own little thing with my own little group of people. And I just spent a lot of time on my own and reading science fiction. And, you know, I just didn't really kind of attach myself to what was going on in politics or anything like that. I did. I did try to get to Greenham Common once and slept in and literally got there in time to see my girlfriend on the coach giving me the two fingers up because I've missed <laughs> it. I'm sorry. So uh, that's the closest I got to social activism right there. Yes, absolutely. So then what, what you were going, you mentioned the warehouse and discos and, and what were the bands that you were going to see at this stage? Were you sort of, because the early 80s, everything starts to happen, doesn't it? We have <laughs> post-punk, we then had the birth of in, indie pop with people like the mm -hmm. Smiths and, and such like who have this glorious five years between 83 mm -hmm. to 87. So what were you, you know obsessing about or were you still not not obsessing i was just you know basically in a way kind of going where everybody else wasn't in i mean in my age group so i was like you know going on purpose to see like acdc and i would go see brand x and i'd see uh you know 
jazz rock type stuff. And basically a lot of time I was at a blues club with my friend from art college. You know, every Friday night we'd go down to this blues club and drink cider, smoke roll-ups and listen to blues, you know. Yeah. While all the cool stuff's happening three blocks away, you know. <laughs> That's excellent, isn't it? You mentioned. Yes, you're right there in the scene. So the 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 sort of when did you first hear about Chumbawamba in in the you know in the sort of lead squat scene? Basically, when everyone did. I mean, that song just you know. But yeah, again, I didn't even know about them until you know that uh, the big song, the big hit. Oh right, so you didn't sort of you know because there's been you know like Dunstan Dunst from the band has made a film recently about. About the early Leeds period and and the and the squat scene and the anarchist scene. Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, a good friend of mine, a guy called Chris Nixon, who was a music journalist and now is a writer of uh, mysteries based in Leeds, uh, which is really great stuff. He knows all that stuff, and he will have known all about that stuff. And I think we were talking about it once when he was living here in Seattle, and I'm like, you know what, Chris, I just don't, I didn't have a clue what was going on, quite frankly. You know, for some reason, I just didn't latch into it you know which is fine you know yes yeah so how do how does your 80s then sort of move towards the the sort of the moment when you joined the Bolshoi well I mean I guess the key was crossing the factory floor once on my way to you know get a coffee or something or a cup of tea at the sign factory and uh, there was a guy from a band called Abrasive Wheels a punk band and uh, he hands me he was a lead guitarist and he hands me this piece of clipping he took out of a melody maker or record whatever it is and said keyboard player salesman wanted so i'm like oh so that was in london so that, like next weekend i just went down because so i was getting kind of bored and uh went down got the job and just left left about a week later moved to london right and, uh, you know joined a band with some people who i was uh friendly with in the downstairs flat i lived in uh Labrick grove right opposite the elgin yes so I, the ground floor of 123 Labrador Grove was populated by a bunch of people from art college who'd moved down to work at ad agencies. And my friend Mark Waits, who's now, you know, one of the founders of uh, Mother London Advertising Agency, of all places, mm -hmm. had a spare room. So I went down and stayed there, and then they all kind of moved out. So I had the whole place kind of to myself and uh, just joined a band, uh, was, formed a band with uh, a guy called uh, Joe Broadbury, who was in the standouts, it's signed to Virgin Records, and it's, it's since lost his record deal. And uh, yeah, so it was called The Intimates, and uh, we just recorded music for like six months. Right. Blimey, that's right. how I met Mick Rossi, actually. Pardon? Oh, that's how I met Mick Rossi. It's uh -huh. Mick Rossi from The Standouts, um, from Manchester, I think. Yes. Uh, he was uh, friends with Joe and a bunch of other people. And, you know, we had people like uh, John Altman, for example, that played uh, Nick Cotton on EastEnders. He was part of the scene as well. He played tambourine and uh, yeah, so it's really kind of a little fun little group. Yes, blimey! Is there any recordings of that band still about, or did you? Well, we recorded something early one Sunday morning at someone's uh, studio, and we recorded five songs, and we actually ended up being all day. And Joe and I hawked that around to all the studios and all the agencies and managers and this and the other. And the songs were great, but Joe at the time had some drug issues and it kind of even looked, unfortunately, like he did when you just saw him. And uh, it, unfortunately, they just didn't kind of want to touch it with the, 
12 foot barge pole or whatever it is you know no absolutely so that was the end of the standout was that the stand did you say that's the band no we, we were called the intimates he was it was George Browery and the standouts oh, and they were signed to Virgin Records and uh yeah so but he was such a talented guy and just you know it's a really really nice person but uh, unfortunately you know got down into the uh, drug drugs and uh you know yes. killed him. oh blimey god oh yeah yeah, it killed half the people I knew. In fact, there was one point I was with uh, Genevieve, someone called Genevieve, and she told me that everyone I was with was basically were heroin addicts. I was like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? Like, what? <laughs> it was like the weirdest feeling. It's like, oh, God. My so God. sad. But anyway, whatever. Tell surprise. Yes, it, you have to move on. My God, was it? Yeah, so blimey, I didn't realise... Yeah, that was quite a spare, hard scene. So then, then you you know, so you're still sort of at this stage, slightly floating, but slightly um, still in London. So how do you get the call for the the the, the Bolshoi? Well, I mean, there was one point with the, with the Intimates where we were recording across the road. Uh, sorry, we were rehearsing across the road from uh, Manchester Apollo down in uh, Hammersmith. Uh, sorry, Hammersmith Apollo. Hammersmith Audion. Is that the one? Is it the Audion or the Apollo down by Hammersmith Station in Hammersmith? Anyway, it's where Bowie did the... You know the great art, the live album. Oh, there. Trident Studio. Yeah, no, it's like the big theatre, the Apollo Theatre. Oh, yeah, sorry, the, the, yeah, the Hammersmith the Apollo is it, or the Hammersmith Audion? I can't remember. Yes, anyway, we're rehearsing, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, Mick Ross is with us, and Mick Ronson walks in, says hi to everyone, and uh, I kind of knew who he was, obviously, and he stands by me and is, is watching me play and is suggesting chord inversions and you know, moving my fingers into different shapes and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. And then literally around two, three weeks later, I'm at uh, this club uh, by Hard Park called Pigeon Toad Orange Peel. And uh, Pete McCarthy approaches me, says, oh, I'm a, you know, I manage a band and, uh, you know, I'd be interested to see if you could, like, get you guys together. So I was like, okay, yeah. So that's kind of how that's – so that's where the Mick Ronson thing is, you see, because there's Mick Ronson, Mick Rossi, Pete McCarthy, all must have known each other. And uh, I understand Trevor was looking to have a, a fourth member – either yes. a guitarist a keyboard player guitarist or a, a keyboard player and uh so he asked peter i think to uh you know look out for someone right and did you know when you sort of went into a band which was quite established what was that what was that like sort of um rather than sort of starting from scratch because obviously they'd brought out their first kind of kind of i don't know i suppose mini album you know um was it giants wasn't it which was on um situation two records yeah i think this was just prior to signing to beggar's banquet i think or maybe that process was taking place and uh i remember i took a first of all i really liked all of them when i first met them they were like super interesting you know and uh just i just really enjoyed the whole experience but i took a couple of singles back to the flat and i was playing them and uh, Danique, my girlfriend at the time, you know, was, I was like, you know what? I said, I just don't know what this music is. I've never heard anything like it. You know, I, do I want to join a band just for the sake of joining a band? Or do I want to join because I can truly contribute something? And if I, if that's the case, what can I contribute? I mean, and then it kind of just started clicking. But the music to me was so new that uh, it was, you know, kind of a little bit intimidating yes uh, it was so good and the music was so good and trevor was just so amazing and i was like you know, but then i'm like you know what i can contribute something i can i can hear what i can contribute to this and uh so that's how that worked 
I mean, they do, they do sort of, well, they did, or you did, I mean, create such an amazing sound, you know, I mean, being a fan, obviously, we were very lucky during the 80s, because there were so many good bands, but I do oh, remember yeah. thinking, you know, there were bands, you know, like at, um, well, Sad sad Lovers and Giants and The Sound and also The Trees, I mean, they were just, mm-hmm. you know, as well as all the other indie bands that are quite obvious, like The Smiths and June Brides and yeah, yeah, no, and and those people like that. So, um, yeah, it was a kind of a glorious time for music actually at that stage. So then, had they start? Had you written the first kind of proper album at this stage? Well, I mean, there were. I can't remember what stage the songs were in, but I remember uh, Trevor had some parts that he'd, you know, obviously, you know, hooks and some lines. Uh, so if I were, if you if Trevor and I were to sit down and, and make a list of what I wrote and what was already written. Uh, I might surprise myself, or but basically, I definitely contributed elements to most of the songs that mostly had sent them in a different direction to what they would have been if I hadn't have been there. Yes, uh, but, I know, do remember. I do remember Mick Garson, Mike Garson, saying about Bowie. You know, when he part came part of that, you know, set up with the you know Ziggy Stardust that he you know he had quite a presence because he had a quite a jazz background. So I. I guess mm-hmm. with your keyboards, it would have also added a lot of a different sonic quality to the to, to the general sort of soundscape of the uh, the combo, really. Well, yeah, and also an, another uh, very important part of the process was when we uh, down in the uh, rehearsal rooms in Greenwich, right down the Cuttisark there, right on the Thames. Uh, Mick Glossop, who's the producer, came down and basically we just reworked all the arrangements and. Uh, you know, just basically figured out, refigured out a bunch of stuff. And to us at the time, it seemed so alien. But then when you go into the studio and you realize that everything's structured and just ready to record, uh, that was a really helpful process. But that changed things up quite a bit, too. Yes. And what's your memories of, I mean, there's those classic songs, aren't there, Away and Sunday Morning. What's your memories of those two songs? Well, my first memory, one of was uh, on Sunday Morning, for example. Uh, the keyboard lines are kind of like odd and maybe discordant, but again, it's like with jazz, you know, sometimes you need the discords and the things to make it sound what it sounds like. But I remember there's one section where I wanted to do a chromatic scale, you know, which is like, you know, to the thing. And it was just like a ridiculous idea because every note is basically out of tune. But as a whole, it gets you to where it needs to be. And Mick Glossop's like, yeah, I like that. Love that. Let's do that. Trevor's like, yeah, let's do it. Yes. Uh, but to actually do that is kind of an unusual type of thing. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that I was doing and uh, kind of getting away with, you know. Yes. At that stage, had you were you still having a day job at this point? No. The no, band was... Uh, yeah, I didn't have a job. I mean, I, I yeah, I stopped going to the... Uh, music store about six to eight months after I got there because I was just get I was just wasn't getting there in time in the morning and uh you know spending time recording so yes. it just let me go yeah so that was somehow cool. survived yes there you go and and did you sort of quickly as a band develop quite an audience at this stage did you have quite a following well my my first show with the band was at the uh marquee club and that was my first live show with them in front of, I think it was a sold out house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty daunting. And that was only maybe weeks after joining the band. 
uh, I think I saw them for the first time somewhere else, and I'm pretty sure I didn't play at that show. I think the marquee was my first show, and yeah, it was like, wow, what the hell is going on here? Yes, and what was it like touring abroad? Obviously, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, my first memory was, you know, even flying from Paris to, you know, Marseille. I'd never flown before and thinking the wings were going to fall off because of flapping around all, all over the place. And Trevor's like, no, it's, it's they're designed to have a lot of play like that. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes. And obviously, Terrifying. and Spain obviously takes you to their heart, don't they? Yeah, well, I was lucky, you know, as a kid in England, you know, as you know, you can you can go to Spain and Italy for your, Spain and Italy for your, birth, for your uh, holidays. Mm-hmm. So it's not a big deal as it's come from the United States. So I was familiar with Spain, but just being with a band and, and you know, going to eat, uh, you know, it's amazing food with the promoters and the booking people and stuff. And, uh, you know, there's one particular time in Fra- south of France. I remember we were eating mussels with this bread around a big table in this French farmhouse. And it was like, wow, this is like amazing, you know. It's like French, it. it's like Betty Blue, wasn't it? Really, without the. Mm-hmm. Um, we in the eighties, we loved all our French films, didn't we? Like Betty Blue and Diva and sort of films like that. Oh, I love like, Diva. It was it was it was what we all sort of and the soundtrack to Betty Blue is beautiful as well. And what was mm-hmm. America like for you, touring? You know, because obviously this is a another step, isn't it? And a further step away from, you know, the, your homelands. Yeah, I mean that was. I mean, obviously, I always. You know, I've been intrigued by America. I mean, my, I used to watch Starsky and Hutch uh, every week when I came home from school. That was like, oh, my God, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. But uh, it was always the kind of place where you never thought you'd ever go. You know, it's like going to another planet, coming from Leeds. Uh, and then so basically when you actually arrive there, we flew over there on a you know big Pan Am 747 jet, which is the iconic, you know, dreamliner kind of uh, transportation yes. from getting to the United States of all places. And uh, we landed in LA and we got into the promoter's car and he turned the radio on and the first words we all heard were da, 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 with a new pl- keyboard player, Paul Clark, here's their song away. Wow. So that's the first radio I heard in the United States. And to have it be my name and our song to me was kind of like, okay, this is kind of weird. This is something that's kind of, you know, so maybe you pre-recorded it and press record to make out, which is totally possible too, but I don't mm. know. Wait, yes, but I don't know. I think it was but, a radio, no, because I think if you actually twiddled the knob to make sure it was, and it went back to uh, to the station. And what, so what were the audiences like? Because obviously at that stage, you know, they, there's always been this curiosity with English-British bands, isn't there, in America? Had, had the band sort of picked up some college radio at this stage? Yeah, I mean, I think we actually got a, a college radio number one. And I don't know if it was on the, the main billboard chart, but we got a number one in the college radio, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but, you know, I mean, some places we play outside to like, you know, a lunch show in the, you know, the UCLA, we'd all get sunburn. And there's a bunch of students, you know, on their lunch break. And then other shows would be, you know, a friend of mine to this day, Stan Kent, had a, uh, a club in Santa Clara called One Step Beyond. And that was great times, you know what I mean? Uh, great audiences. And then other places would be kind of fairly light, you know, I mean, maybe the East Coast, there might be kind of some places that, you know, not that many people there. But then yeah. we go back and there'd be a lot more people, like an appreciably larger amount of people, maybe yes. only six months later, yeah. 
Because doing, you know, having done this show for quite a long time, most bands have that kind of five year narrative, you know, they have the 12 month honeymoon. And, in, you know, I mean, I know John Peel didn't particularly jump. He, he didn't love the band, did he really? But in a lot of the indie bands, you know, they would get the John Peel play, the John Peel session with Del yeah. Griffith. And then the first album, then the slightly tricky second album, then the third album was often here. And, and most bands seem to split up after doing an American tour. It seemed to finish them off. But obviously you you were sort of you you didn't have that experience at all did you well i mean oh, and that's another thing as well with the shows i would watch old grey whistle test as a kid and uh you know i mean i remember frank zappa's city tiny lights you know i'd watch that when my parents were asleep you know so that's another kind of moment but yeah i always wanted i would love to have been on old grey whistle test never had any desire to be on top of the pops uh but yeah and nightingale actually was uh helped promote us she she liked us and i think the bbc even banned uh sunday morning or because it had uh, drug connotations uh they said because it said feeling sick on a sunday morning they thought it was some kind of uh, this is my understanding so they banned it and uh you know weird. yes i did not know that that's that's so strange so did you not have any person who championed the band on radio then because obviously was, was well, just, uh, not really. I mean, and Nightingale, as I say, played us. Uh, and also Radio Caroline. Uh, I remember when I went, the, the year I joined and we, we recorded Friends and I went up to Leeds uh, for Christmas. And I had my little radio on that I'd had it since a kid and I tuned it into uh, Radio Caroline and you know, it's kind of, kind of coming in and out. I think it was AM. Yes. Played away. And it's the same radio I'd heard all my favorite songs. And I heard that in context. And I was like, wow, this sounds great. You know, so Radio Caroline, all the radio stations were, were, you know, playing, I suppose. But, you know, I wasn't directly involved in marketing it or distributing it. So I don't really know how that, that all kind of worked. Because we also were lucky in this country with three weekly music papers, the NME, Melody Making Science. Did any of those, yeah. did any of those champion the band at all? I mean, strangely enough, I mean, I'm sure I don't really remember anything specific. I mean, every week we would get like a like a scrapbook of press cuttings, and I think like the teenage magazines were were doing f features on the band uh, more than the music papers. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know if that's how uh, a purpose, uh, you know, marketing on purpose decision from Beggars Banquet, or whether it was just that's those are the only ones that wanted to pick us up, and the serious papers. You know, never gave us a front page or anything like that. Maybe it's because we weren't on a major label, but there again, you know, who knows? No, that's so weird, isn't it? It is strange. It is strange. It is very, it was, you know, you slipped through those gaps, didn't you, on that front? Did you, you know, when you came to record the, the sort of the kind of second album, Lindy's Party, um, what was the atmosphere, I mean, dynamically with the band and also creatively, you know, bringing that album together? Well, I mean, first of all, it was really, great to be recording in a residential studio so you could actually live there and all working together to you know record our parts and have like a big you know sheets of paper and making sure that we're doing everything that we should be recording and this that and the other and working with you know a great engineer mark and uh also the studio was owned by uh, john eden who was a status quo producer for ages i mean excellently produced albums yes so, you know, we went in there and just recorded and, you know, we had fun and, you know, just recorded the music and that, and even, you know, going to actually mix it. What uh, studio did you use? It was Brook Farm in Surrey, I think. 
Is it Surrey? Well, uh, no, Burris and Edmonds. Oh, it's yeah, Suffolk. Surrey. I always get them mixed up. It's fair enough. They both begin with S. There you Brooke go. Farm Studios, Suffolk. Oh, yeah, it's owned by John Eden, and uh, there was a right by uh, Burris and Edmonds, and there's like a, a Green King Brewery was there. So we had we got to drink some really good, yes, good beer. Was the band more of a drinking band than a smoking band? Uh, we would drink and smoke, but you know we would work when we were working. I don't. We never. You know, I don't remember us drinking. It was always one or the other. And then after we'd been working, which we worked very hard, and for as long as we could, then we'd go have some beers. Yes, we were very, very social. We were a very close knit group, and uh, you know, we had some good uh, good drinking sessions for sure. Yes, because there's a. My one of my favorite tracks on that album is um, Cracking Smile. That's quite an mm -hmm. epic song. Can you remember how that comes together? Because it's it, it has a feeling that there was a lot of work in it and something I don't know. I mean, I've never heard the story, but I just I kind of feel that listening to it, there is a sense of like this, this, this is quite your one of your masterpieces that, um, yeah, was, was going to. I must, I must, I must yeah. agree. You know, I just love the build, the progression. I mean, as I say, it all comes from, you know, uh, the, the, the lyrics and just the way it builds, uh, just building off as simply as possible and then just adding things. And then I remember uh, we didn't really have an ending. We didn't know how to end it. So basically it's like, look, we're off to the pub. You just figure it out. So they disappeared off. So it's me and the engineer. And this is in, I don't think this is in Brook Farm. This is in a studio uh, somewhere in London or something. I don't know mm. what happened. Maybe this, this is when we were pre-rehearsals. I yes. can't quite remember. Uh, but post-production, rather. Pre-production. But basically, I figured out the keyboard line, which was like this big strings thing at the end. And then it just really, that was like the you know end of the song. And uh, I was really glad because we, we just couldn't figure out how to end it. Right. And I think I ended it really well. The lyrics are brilliant, but I just think oh, musicality yeah. is just fantastic. And I kind of think... God, that must be the one that I just wonder if that was the band, the song that the band were thinking. God, this is gonna, this is gonna be the one that's gonna. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we never knew. I mean, it's impossible to tell. I mean, you know, just recorded the music the way we wanted to record it, and uh, you know. But I remember keeping it very simple and very structured. Uh, was definitely key. You know what I mean? And yeah, I just love the way it builds. But yeah, it's your. I guess it is six minutes, which is probably a bit. You know, but it's still, you know, it's a great. And also TV Man, what was that? What's your memory like of putting that one together? Well, I think my memories for that mainly were uh, when we were in, let's see, where were, it's difficult to remember specifically. I really liked the, obviously inspired by Trevor's lyrics too. So a lot of it is to, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Western movies and TVs and stuff, TV Westerns. So I wanted that big kind of strings thing. And again, it's from my perspective. Uh, I, I, so I wanted to do a big fat strings. Uh, and this is similar to the arpeggiation in Sunday morning where it kind of build, do, 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 you know what I mean, into the chorus. And I just, my job was to just build, to, to, to you know, basically accentuate what Trevor was singing about, quite frankly. Yes. Uh, so when he sings, it invokes images in my mind and to turn, translate that into music, uh, but also to try and do it so the space, so I'm not swamping everything out. But, you know, as a keyboard player, it's easy to kind of do that. It's definitely easy now. But, uh, you know, when you're in a four-piece band, you know, you've got, you, you've got your place, you know. 
Yes, well, absolutely. And it's, you know, I, you know, it's a great album. You know, I know that, um, yes, 87, I still think it's one of the best years of music. The releases that year are just fantastic. I oh, think. I agree. It's incredible. I mean, it's just the releases that year, rather, yeah, amazing. Yes, it, it just was yeah, as a fan again, as a fan, you just kind of. But um, but then after that's come out, then you do you tour that album at all, or is it? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we toured it. Uh, the United States for sure. Uh, I can't remember if we went. I did with some European dates. I I really can't remember. I think Spain, yes. as well. Uh, but yeah, I can't. I can't remember definitively. In fact, I've actually got a T-shirt here. Oh, blimey! And it's still in its um, wrapper. Yeah, it's actually funny because I was going to talk about uh, the marketing aspects, but I'm trying to see if this was the world tour. And this was the world tour. Oh, we love of, marketing. Uh, the friend, <laughs> friends, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd have My to God. look. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that after all these years, you've managed to keep a box of memorabilia for your band. Yeah, well, this is actually on purpose because I'm. You know, we're doing T-shirts for the Bolshoi brothers. And That's right. I wanted to look at what the old T-shirts were like, you know, to kind of refresh my memory. And there they were, not destroyed by moths or cats. Which is which is a double, all rats, which could be even worse. That's, yeah, but all I think, yeah, Hugh, Cold, Hugh Calder made a, a list of all the shows we did. And I think it's on one of the websites or something. And he was uh, one of our tour guys. Right. And we would know then at that point where we played after Lindy's party. Yes, so he would have got it all. But then what's what so you mentioned your marketing. What was your marketing strategy for the band at this stage? Well, I mean, I remember when I first joined the band and I saw that Jan had done all, a whole bunch of the artwork and was just really impressed. Uh, you know, I mean he, he was he just genuinely enjoyed doing graphic design and drawing and stuff. So he did a great job doing that. I think I contributed a little bit uh for I think uh, one of the uh, one of the single covers and this and the other, and I definitely contribute my opinion. Uh, but at that point, I think we got uh, designers. Beggars Banquet got designers to do the logos and all that kind of stuff. So we just kind of okay it. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I just, what Jan was doing, I just loved it. I mean, it was like wow, sub story cover is just amazing. Fantastic, absolutely. Then, then how's the as the eighties are progressing? I mean, it's kind of a kind of interesting period because. What I've noticed with a lot of bands from this scene, um, or from any decade, is that every five years there's sort of a bit of a new chapter that develops because there's a, I suppose, a new wave of 16, 18 year olds appear and they want to discover their new bands for themselves mm -hmm. who are just kind of breaking out with their first single and first album and, you know, first tours and that stuff. So often a lot of the bands I've, I've spoken to, they have that, oh my God, suddenly you know, everything's slightly moved along and they're now looking at the third or fourth albums. And the, and that sort of 88 period, 89, you know, ecstasy comes along, which I do think has quite a major moment because this sort of dance scene starts to appear, doesn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, suddenly it's, it's the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, the Orb, you know, the Chicago House Sounds, Acid House as well. And mm -hmm. then, you know, go into the kind of, bands like My Bloody Valentine and Carter and Lush and people like that. So so what's it like when you're sort of kind of 88 time and and sort of woke up on New Year's Day thinking, right, the band, what are we doing next? Yeah, well, I mean, things did change really quickly. I mean, the Happy Monday stuff, all of a sudden, like everyone's like doing these kind of really weird dances, wearing these like, you know, cloth, weird clothes. And all of a sudden everyone's listening to it in the old house scene. 
And then at the same time, you get in the United States, the grunge thing kind of happening too. So there's like this butting of heads of two. And then we're kind of there like, oh, all of a sudden we're like last year. You know, I mean, yes. how, how does that work? Is that, well, no, we're not. I mean, we, we've, got a, we've got people who like the music and they'll continue to like the music and we continue to make music. And that's that. But there's such a sea change that you're kind of, you know, kind of swimming upstream in a way, you know. Yes. And uh, I don't know whether it was difficult for the people who were involved in the marketing or, you know, this and the other, or uh, club promoters even. I mean, do they want to, you know, who are they going to have on stage on Saturday night? You know, is it going to be a Happy Mondays type band? Or, I mean, who knows? So I don't know That's any right. of that kind of stuff, but I do know things definitely changed. They did change rather radically. <laughs> did you, I mean, were you still on Beggars at this stage when you were sort of looking to record Country Life? Uh, yeah, I mean, we were... I mean, it's, there's definitely, it's very strange unless I actually sit down with, you know, the three other guys and we go down a list of, of dates and chronology and what happened when. Because <laughs> honestly, yes. I don't have a clue, quite frankly, the, the timing of whatever happened when. Yes. Uh, but yeah. But you record Country Life which in 88, which then gets reissued in 2015. Is that? Yeah, I mean, we were continuing to record and, uh, you know, we would either record all four of us, or it'd be me and Trevor recording, putting ideas together, or it'd just be, you know, we'd, we'd be continuing to record and doing demos and this and the other. Uh, but though I don't think there was a specific set date as to when is this album going to come out? You know, yes. like, well, when is the album going to come out and when, we're gonna, when are we going to tour it? You know, I, I don't remember that, that kind of conversation. Yes. So did you have a moment with the band in sort of 88, 89, where with, you'd got the album re recorded, but did you then sit down and did the band just finish? Did it Was it a kind of phone call or was it a meeting in a pub? Uh, well, I mean, one of the first things which was, you know, unfortunate, but I guess at the time we felt it was necessary was to have a conversation with Pete McCarthy, who was our manager, and, and Nicky, and... Uh, you know, I think we wanted like a change of changing of the guard in a way. I guess we just needed to change things up. And maybe we were looking to, you know, get like a record deal with a different record label. Uh, you know, I know that we Warner Chapel were very, very helpful. Uh, they were, you know, we were in their studio a lot recording. Yes. Uh, I think uh, we had a lawyer uh, who was, basically acting in a way as kind of a manager. Uh, but yeah, again, it's, it's difficult to know the chronology. But yeah, we just continue to record. We just continue to do what we did, you know? Yes. I do know we had to get day jobs. Well, uh, in, in the late 80s. Yeah, because, you know, obviously we weren't getting money from the record label anymore. So, you know, we have to just, you know, just get like day jobs and things and do stuff to basically, uh, you know, pay the rent. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yes. just continue to record and, you know. And then, and when did you sort of realise that the band was over then? When was when was that moment where you think, actually, the band really isn't kind of happening? In well, I mean, it was basically, there was a, you know, a phone call. I think we'd all mutually kind of realised that uh, we we're banging our heads against a brick wall. And uh, there was a phone call from Trevor to myself and saying, you know, it's just not, it's not working out. And, uh, you know, like that. I mean, it wasn't a, a big traumatic moment. It was just something that, you know, is a logical yes. step. 
Well, it, yeah. it never, it's never often that radical, is it? It's often just people not turning up or just, you know, the, the apathy. Not always, but you know, it's got a lot of, everyone's kind of feels the same. It's not like, my God, everyone wants us. It's going so well. It's often like, yes, you know, no one really cares anymore, do they? So um, Yeah, it was, yeah and again, I, I don't know definitively and exactly what happened and steps, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's like, well, we can do shows and people will come to the shows, but, uh, you know, we need to get an album out, you know, how do we do yes. that? You know, because I, I, because um, actually it was just last year, there was somebody who made this film on a, a band from 1979 who only brought out, they only lasted eight months. They brought out one EP called Rima Rima was the band. And it was kind of interesting because they were the first band on 4AD records. And, you know, this guy's managed to make a film, a 90-minute film about them. One of the members, they all, most of the members, actually one of them is Marco Peroni, who goes into Adamant, another guy, Gary, uh -huh. goes into Renegade Soundway. But it was kind of interesting because there was that moment where, as the, as the filmmaker kind of makes manages to do a narrative of this, goes into the kind of the vault, and there it is, the kind of... Um, the kind of all the all the master tapes. So I who who kind of keeps hold of that such physical kind of uh, material, which is basically the essence of the band. I just wondered who you know who keeps who keeps these kind of precious recordings. I would imagine it's Beggar's Banquet uh, because I mean they just re, re they released that five CD box set and they mastered remastered everything. Uh, right. On, no, I don't think we remastered the uh, you know Friends and his party, but yeah, they remastered uh, a whole bunch of stuff, and uh, yeah, so that would come from them, and maybe Warner Chapels have uh, access to it too. Right, the physical four track, uh, physical multi tracks. Was that a project the band was involved in at that stage? Uh, yeah, I mean we were all we were all involved to the point where uh, we knew it was happening, and but you know we we didn't get to choose. Uh, I didn't get to decide or choose what was. It was basically everything. They put everything in there, and uh, there's some gems I'd never heard, you know, in 20, 25 years, and so it was a joy to listen to that. It was very interesting. Yes, and your live and the live album as well. Was that one that they recorded, or was that from the band? The the one from nineteen eighty six. Again, I'm not sure whether uh, you know the management. Uh, organized that recording or whether it was from the label but uh, yeah I'm glad it happened yes well, we did a show two, we did two years at Reading Festival in front of you know a, a festival audience which I would love to have heard recorded but it wasn't recorded but uh, you know the live shows we really excelled in the live shows and uh, you know very powerful and Trevor's stage presence and just the whole band as a whole most of the time would just click and it would just be like electric yeah, uh, you know, part of that was just wonderful. There's a great little film of uh, the band. I think it's about 40 minutes worth in Spain, and uh, you know the band look amazing and the sound is fantastic. But you're all such um, good-looking chaps, aren't you? Really, you must have had a hell of a fan base. Oh yeah, I mean, very, very lucky to be such good-looking guys <laughs> to, this, to this day. This is absolutely, it's, <laughs> it's all good. So then, what happens to you for the 90s? Obviously, you. You watch all these Brit pop bands on top of the pops a few years later, thinking, "Oh, that's interesting. We we should be there doing that stuff." That's that's. Yeah, well, I moved to the United States in ninety one. Ninety one. What was your What was the reason for sort of up and and off in going? Well, to... because uh, I I married uh, my wife Kathy and uh, met her in San Francisco. She came to the United States, London. We got married. And then I'm like, well, you know, what's, there's no real point being in London. 
So, you know, maybe we should move, you moved back to the United States. And uh, so we didn't know where to go. I was to Los Angeles, New York. And the hometown was Seattle. I'd never been there. We never, the Bolshoi never played there. There was no history of being there. Mm. So I'm like, well, Seattle it was. So I just moved to Seattle. And uh, that was when the whole grunge thing was kicking in. I know your uh, timing. <laughs> yeah, it was like, but the thing is, grunge is guitar. There's no keyboards. I mean, I've no. been like one of maybe three keyboard players in the whole town. So, but I had no desire to join another band. I had no desire to. You know, I just wanted to continue recording, you know, my own solo stuff, which I was doing for two years before I left. Uh, you know, in the, in the flat. So, you know, continue yes. to do that. And did you? I mean, so basically, you kept your solo kind of projects going, got a day job, and then kept it going like that. Yeah, I mean, that's when the internet as well. I mean, I remember the first time, you know, we saw, you know, an internet marketplace where we could buy dot-coms. I mean, cats.com was available, dogs.com, you know, f1.com was available. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. So I, I bought electronicmusic.com. Yeah. And all of a sudden, then I'm reviewing, I'm, I can get sent stuff, I can get sent software uh, and that I can use to do my solo music. I mean, I couldn't afford to buy some of the software that you needed to be able to, uh, you know, do this stuff. So I'd get it to review it on the website and use it, you know. Yes, absolutely. This is this is the this is the great thing of review copies, isn't it? That we yeah. that's why people started fanzines, I think. Um oh, it's great. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I get to see Daft Punk and their first, you know, US tour when there's like maybe you know, it's like it's like a twelve hundred place uh, you know, club. And you get to see Daft Punk because there's no way I would have found out about that unless I got a press release saying, you know. Go see Daft Punk and review them, you know. So all this amazing music and all this electronic music uh, was just, like, amazing, you know. I would imagine. That must have been incredible to, to oh, sort yeah. of see the kind of the change, but also see the internet change because there was a, a few years ago there was a, a film on Beats music and that had Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and they were, you know, everything was going so well, so well, and then suddenly <laughs> Napster appeared and it's like, oh, actually, perhaps it's not going to go quite so well on that one. Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing time. I mean, I, I, I'm i even, I reviewed Moby's play, single, uh, album. Yes. The same issue of Wired that was talking about MP3s. What are MP3s? And, uh, you know, and I was working in a, in a, a place that basically digitized movies and music. So we, so it all became very internet centric. Uh, and, you know, it was really, especially in Seattle, it was just like, you know, and to be able to do that along with recording the music was just uh, continue to record music was great. You know, yeah. Did did you ever get into doing soundtracks or TV stuff? Or I mean, I would have if, if I'd have you know basically pursued it. It would have been nice to do, but again, a lot of that stuff you got to be in Los Angeles, right? Uh, you got to be you know partying with people and meeting people all the time. And uh, I'm not really sure how much of that was going on in Seattle, no. which is one of the reasons why I kind of moved here. You know, just to be kind of out out of it so then sort of a few years ago obviously what a weird decade we have the uh, lockdown but when did mm -hmm. you when did you and trevor sort of meet each other again to talk about your new project well i mean we'd worked on a couple of uh, I, I played keyboards on a, a couple of his songs on his solo albums and we'd stayed in touch and you know just chat and you know touch base every so often but uh I think I'm not sure the definitive moment, but it might have been uh, I had Mick Glossop 
he produced or mixed uh, one of my, my solo, my second solo album. And uh, I sent it, I sent some songs to Trevor. I'll put a link to the uh, Facebook page or whatever. And, uh, you know, he liked a couple of the songs and we just started talking about working together yes. again. And uh, that's kind of how it started. So when did, when did you sort of come up with the name and say, right, we're going to, we are going to be a duo here at this stage? Well, there's a mutual friend of ours, uh, Bob Thompson, and uh, he basically used to see Trevor and I go into the uh, local pub uh, in Forest Hill, I think it was, and they go, there's the, there go the Bolshoi brothers. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of just, you know, that's kind of remembered, remembered that. So it's like we're, we're the Bolshoi brothers back when we were in the Bolshoi, basically. Right. So you suddenly <laughs> thought that's it. So with the project, yeah. have you have you started making and and I know you've got a single out at them or up at the moment. Is it Steam Funk, isn't it? Yeah, Steam Funk is more a song that we use to, pro, uh, you know, launch the website and the, the you know, the uh, logo and the, and the you know, the, the project. Our first actual single is going to be out shortly and uh that will be one of maybe a couple until we uh release the album which is recorded it's all done um, it's just you know it's just like a timeline thing you know i want to kind of just like say here it is you know i mean what is things have got to be in place so people actually will hear it yeah they disappear into a black hole you know which is quite easy have you done all this on logic yeah i've done it on logic trevor's in a logic too we got very similar uh systems we, we made a point of having very similar systems you know him in florida me here so when we send files to each other they're compatible yes uh, so we weren't having to actually at first we were sending actual project files to each other and then we realized it was just easier for me to send you know s specific tracks and he record parts to it and vice versa right you know, for example there's one was one file he sent I think it was even recorded on an iPhone or something, uh, just like a very short segment. And I dropped it into Logic here, built music around it, and then sent it back to Trevor. And then Trevor builds his more lyrics around it, more parts, and sends it back to me. And so the next thing you know, it's done. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Because I saw his, uh, his kind of uh, YouTube concert live show, which was um, Trevor Tanner. And was it the Neighborhood Nutters? <clears throat> yeah, something like that. Yeah. There was there was a version of I think he did Sultan Sultan's Swing and also Space Oddity as well didn't he and also mm -hmm. Shepherd's Pie as well so where where does where does his kind of solo work start and finish and where does the Bolshoi Brothers sort of fit in with that as well and your own sort of work I I just wondered if if you've you know how you sort of think yes this is our project rather than this is kind of your solo work or my solo work and we're just sort of stitching it together. Well, we're actually working exactly the same way as how we worked with the Bolshoi. Right. Where he will have an idea, he'll have some lyrics, he'll have a, an idea of where it wants to go, a, a basis of a song. And I will do exactly what I did with the Bolshoi, which is like put more music to it. Only this time I'm doing the the bass and the drums, or percussion rather. Yes. Uh, so that's obviously it's not as involved uh, rhythm section wise, uh, but it's a lot more involved in other areas so it's nice to have that that simpler you know rhythm track if you like because then i can do more musical rhythmical things you know yes I mean? absolutely you know i mean i just want do you ever sort of slip into sort of elements of i don't know people like the doors because they were sort of very keyboard 
driven, weren't they? I just wondered if that that kind of has an influence or that that's that sometimes makes you have to stop and think, no, that's just too much like the doors here at the moment. Well, so luckily, as I say, I mean, look, luckily, I, I don't listen to music all the time. I never listen to music when I'm driving. I don't listen to music when I'm sat down reading a book. I don't, so it's all kind of in my head. So I'm, it's, it's difficult for me to, to plagiarize even not knowing I'm doing it because right. I don't have that much other music in my head. Yes. Kind of selfish like that. So when I'm working on a, a song that Trevor's written the bare bones to, uh, it's all it's not coming in from outside. It's coming straight from inside, and uh, so it's pretty unique and individual. And I think that really kind of shows. Yes. And is it the case then when you bring the album out that you'll want to do some live dates, probably in America because you're both there, and and be able to sort of tour that as a? Will you do it as a two? piece or will you get a, a, bit, a bit of a because I noticed he had a band for his kind of neighborhood nutters who were amazing musicians so I just wondered oh, yeah. if you if you were gonna try and sort of flesh it out a bit and and put a, a little bit of a tour together for that well it's it's the Bolshoi brothers which is Trevor and I yeah uh, we can do anything from live streams where we're both in different cities but playing together or it's easy for me to fly to Florida or meet anywhere in between uh, just as it is for him to come over to the West Coast and we play shows in Seattle and uh, you know, Los Angeles together. Uh, there's no reason at all. I mean, I've seen enough bands that are two or three people and a backing track, and they've been amazing to know that that's not a big deal like it used to be. You know, I mean, Sisters of Mercy, for example, they had a drum machine behind all the smoke. A lot of people didn't even realize they didn't have a drummer. Yes. Right? You just like see one guy in the middle and kind of two other guys, and he couldn't even see if a drummer was because there wasn't one. Yeah. So it's if things are set up differently now, where you can just tour with as two people and basically have backing tracks. And uh, so yeah, so that's kind of the, the plan. Yes, well that's fantastic. Is that something that's planned for this year then? Well, I mean, at some point we're going to pr to promote the album, and so it's all part going to be part of the timeline. Uh, but yeah, uh, I don't see why why not. But we'll just have to see what happens. It's all, you know, it's all down the road. Yeah. Well, this is this is all very exciting. Is it the case then that you, you know, obviously you've got this other back catalogue between you? Will you put the occasional old classic in just for old time's sake? Well, I mean, those are songs that we, you know, we really like and people really like, and it just wouldn't make sense to just you know go out and do all. Uh, Bolshoi Brothers' new music. I mean, it'd be nice to have context and have two or three, you know, Bolshoi songs. Whether they would sound exactly the same, I, I would doubt it. Yeah. But, you know, Trevor's, Trevor sang, Trevor played guitar, I played keyboards, so it's not going to sound that much different. Yes. And has, and has, and has your playing style changed much? Because I know Trevor, you know, his guitar playing has, has kind of certainly sort of gone to another level, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm a recording guy, so I will, it's like, so for example, if I go to a party and someone says, oh, I'll play the piano, I'm like, no, what would I possibly play? You know, whereas I will sit down recording and play, create parts and play parts and record parts, and I would recreate that on stage. Yes. But I'm not like Trevor, where he could basically play anything. I mean, it's his memory of not just the past, but 
it basically reflects on how he can remember lyrics, remember guitar parts of any single song he can think of. So it's kind of photographic memory. It's like pretty, pretty pristine. Jeez, I don't geez. have that. No, <laughs> Jesus! If only we did. That would make life so much easier. Yes, yeah. as you go. But just, just as kind of an incurious, I don't know if you saw. You know, was it the the David Bowie film that came out last year, Moon Age Daydream? And there was I've got this. My daughter lent me the DVD, so I'm right. going to watch. You're going to watch it soon. Yeah, I just wondered how you, you know, as a creative artist, how you also sort of relate to those those processes and the, and the way that you know someone like Bowie. In, in like the 70s, as an example, you know, he he released like one album a year. So that was like nearly 10 albums produced different peoples and and just the amount of influences and styles that he he developed during just one decade. I just wondered what it was, you know, for you as a keyboard player, sort of realizing that you went from your prog rock period to, you know, probably other interests as well. I just wondered if if that has, has kind of is going to be slipping into your new work with the Bolshoi Brothers. Well, it's very, as with the Bolshoi and, uh, you know, my, my solo stuff, it's very piano orientated. So it's very musical and very structured. And uh, but the sounds that you can utilize nowadays, uh, anything you can think of is just instantly there. So you've, if anything, got to stop yourself from going where you would like to go because it just becomes too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were to, if someone was to sit down and listen to some of the, the solo things I did, I mean, it's just, there's no way you could play. It was like 12 minutes long. It's like, what the hell is this? Uh, but that's what I like. But all of it is rest restraining. So when I'm, when I'm working with Trevor, you have that, the lyrics, you know, the melody, the guitar, and it's easier to work around that as opposed to just go out and just create some, you know, like philharmonic orchestra type synthesizer thing yes. and uh, enjoy that format i was never really into like the three and a half four minute long pop song format ever mm -hmm. but at the same time that was one of the biggest changes was to understand how that works and just to fit it all into that four minutes and it starts and it finishes and everything in, in, inside that package really works and, and makes you emotional and uh you know that was the biggest change for me is going from the 20 minute long you know, <laughs> prog stuff to, you know, four minute package. Yes. And just yeah, most of our songs were four minutes. Yes. Apart from Cracked Smile, Cracked and Smile, mm -hmm. which was six. I mean, just because at the beginning you mentioned disco and heavy metal. Just curious. I mean, what would you, you know, if someone said, right, what's your, you know, favorite two, I don't know, disco songs and your favorite two metal songs were, what would you, what would you just on the spot pick? Uh, well, I mean, straight away, I'm thinking Human League, <laughs> uh, you know, Depeche Mode, where there are elements of both, you know, Killing Joke even. Yes. Uh, where you got rock and disco in a way, you know. So uh, the Bolshoi, you know, that's what I would pick. But if I had to go for a specific disco song, I mean, you're looking at, you know, like uh, Chic, for example, you right. know, uh, uh, Georgia Moroda. You know, Donna Summer. I mean, oh, you know, like uh, pull up to the like, what's it? Uh, Grace Jones. Oh yeah, pull up to the, to the rhythm. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, that's full on disco, and then rock. You know, Hell's Bells. <laughs> you know, <laughs> full on, you know, simple four part rock. Yes. 
But when you when you heard the soundtrack to Midnight Express, did you think that was musical genius? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the stuff that I uh, and paired. You know, you think of Midnight Express the movie as well. It's basically like a music video. That's like a really long music video, and it's just amazing. Yes, you know. It's quite something. And I'm yes, my 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 friend's brother had a copy and I recorded it and I was I was mesmerized. There's oh. even there's even ballads on it. <laughs> it's horrific. It's, you know, the, the the movie itself is horrific. Like Scarface, you know, that's one reason why I never got into Coke because uh, I just couldn't go there because of seeing that. You know, yes, and good fun. Horrific. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's bad. Yeah. So look, just lastly, then, if you could have kind of whispered something to your like sixteen-year-old self starting out, you know, would would there be any words of ideas or advice or you know wisdom that you might have just got, even if that person ignored it? I just wondered if there was anything that you would have thought, yeah, my God, that would have been a good thing to have known when I started out. Well, I think not to be afraid to put music out when it's done, put more music out, keep putting music out, don't put it out for the sake of putting music out, but, you know, don't be afraid to record something and get it, you know, professionally mastered and yeah. put it out and then, you know, be be my age now and have, you know, 12, 13 albums out, you know? Right. Uh, but, but then again, you know, you, you, can, you can set, you can try and determine fate but then, you know, along comes the internet and you spend 20 years working on websites. So, you know, it kind of throws it all out the window. Gone, isn't it? But anyway, look, the good thing is you, you've got a new musical project, which is... Which yeah, I'm is... loving it. It's, it's, very, it's very, it's amazing. It's, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like when you uh, went down to the bottom of the garden mm-hmm. and there's like a little gate and you open it up and you go through into like a whole new world. It's kind of like that working with Trevor again. It's kind of verging on magical. And so yes. I'm very excited about it. So, so just with your with the single, well, not the single, but the the record that you've got, which is kind of currently there doing it. Yeah, the Steampunk. Yeah, on the website. Yeah, the, the album is not going to be much like that. Is that the case? Well, you know, as I say, with the Bolshoi, all the songs are going to be different. You know, but how how they're different, it's difficult to tell. Yes. Or, um, but I'm not sure that works. Basically, they're, they're all going to be different, uh, but they'll they will sound like the Bolshoi brothers. Excellent. This is good. Well, we're going to be very curious. I, I think you like it. Do you have a, a kind of a month that you're thinking? You know, keep your eyes out. There might be something being announced, or just keep an eye on the website or Facebook. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many factors, and because we're not. Ex- experts in you know figuring out timelines for releasing things and distribution it, it, it because everything's written and recorded and mixed uh we can set a timeline so i'm looking you know it's difficult to tell but before summer and Excellent. maybe before spring who knows but uh you know, we just want to do it right we want to just roll it out so it's natural and there's a lot of new stuff coming out right now which is great but uh, yeah, and we've got all the marketing things to go too. So, you know, it's like, it's a really fun project. Yes, well, it's good. It's good. You know, you wouldn't believe how many people I've interviewed recently who've got musical projects they're doing with either various ex-members or new members. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable just how many people have just gone, yeah, we're just making more music. You know, after, poss- you know, not everybody put their you know musical instruments in a cupboard and forgot about it for two decades mm-hmm. or three decades but an awful lot of people did 
And now they're sort of going, actually, I really like to play music again and do it one more time just for the fun of it all. And, well, plus um, that yeah. machine isn't the machine isn't kind of there anymore. I mean, unless you're, you know, Rihanna or, you know, five other people, that's it. You know, so the means are there to do your own thing and to get it out there and, you know, just just figure out how it works. Yes. And, it, and it's right there. Yes. And what was your memory of the Reading, the Reading Rock Festival, the night that you were on the day on the Friday with King, Killing Joke? Do you have many much memory of that? I've got memories of playing and hearing the echo from the back where the trees were and realizing how big the audience was, uh, you know, because you play and you could hear it swirling around in the air. And uh, I was also remember being very, very grateful that we'd been playing a lot and we knew the songs and we were tight and it was making it happen because I would not want to go up on that stage not feeling 101% right. confident. That would be terrifying. As it is, we walked in there and didn't give a fuck, just did it. There you go, just did it. Indeed, a good motto for life. Um, and a massive thank you to Paul Clark from the Bolshoi and the new combo, the Bolshoi Brothers. And um, as I said, I'll give you the link to their website. But um, yes, they've got a new single that has just come out, which is titled Just a Girl, which has got a fantastic video as well. Great sound. So do check it out. 2023, just in case you're listening in the future, wondering what year this is. Um, anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. Oh, yeah. And if you want to contact me for some nice reason, nice, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Also, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? On Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and a few others, I believe. Anyway, I must go. Have a great week. Stay safe.